So today we are um, on, in our second Sunday on our study on the Beatitudes. And uh, we're setting up really the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. And um, so what I'm struck with today is as we go through this, I'm still setting up the context of, of the message, of the, the, uh, the story, the message that Jesus was giving. I think it's so important that we do the best we can to understand the context of what the ministry was like back 2,000 years ago. Because the Jewish traditions, the Jewish customs are so different than ours. And sometimes we can miss a lot. And I am no Jewish scholar, so I miss a lot. I will just tell you that, but I'm trying to grasp what I can, trying to set the tone and get the context of the message. And, and so doing what I'm trying to do today is kind of um, be one of the people in, in, in the grassy field that Jesus was ministering to as he was beginning to speak about the Beatitudes. And I, I, I want to see Jesus. I, I want to try to grasp what his facial context was. What was his body language? Um, what was he doing? How was he expressing himself? And I, I'm trying to find his, his whole way of communicating because when we communicate, we do so much more than just our words. Do you know that? It's how we look. It's our eye, it's our eye expressions. And, and I'm sure that Jesus just exuded love. Every pore of his body, love must have poured out of it some way or, sh- or form. And I'm just trying to grasp that today. And, and in that, I'm also trying to understand what Jesus is saying and in the context of what he was saying. We really don't know when it was in the ministry of Jesus that he gave this message. Um, but it was, we believe, early in his ministry because... Uh, in Matthew, it's given like it's the next thing he did when he got out of the uh, temptation uh, that he he then began his ministry. So we really don't know exactly when it was, but I do think we can be pretty much sure that Jesus was speaking to potential believers and not and probably not mature believers. I mean, even if he was two years or three years into his ministry, his ministry was only three some years. <laughs> so none of the people that he believed that, that believed in Jesus were mature believers at the time because, remember, they were coming out of a, all the Jewish people were coming out of the Old Testament covenant. They didn't even know what the New Testament was. <laughs> it hadn't been written yet. Jesus was fulfilling it. He was living it. He was fulfilling the Old Testament in front of their eyes. So these Jewish people were living under Old Testament law. And Jesus comes on the scene with all these new things. The way that the law is being fulfilled in him. And they're sitting there thinking, how is this going to happen? And they're totally naive. And the Gentiles didn't even have a way to God at that point in time. So really, this was such a new message to all, both Jewish and, Jews and Gentiles, that it really is an amazing teaching. And, and therefore, when they see that Jesus was a teacher beyond teachers, we understand why, because no prophet to this point in time had ever spoken with the authority and the power that Jesus was speaking with. So this was an amazing new teaching coming to all the people. Larry, can you throw my slides up, please? What we're going to find is that Jesus was very direct 
with his nature. He didn't come with mixed signals. Now, he spoke in parables, and we might get into some of the parables at some point in time, and the parables might seem a little confusing, but Jesus always explained them. And the reason that he spoke in parables so much was because parables were stories that people could understand in the context of their living, and they could draw some conclusions or draw some um, some challenges uh, of the parables. But because of Jesus' directness, Jesus has expectations of his followers. And I think it's important that we recognize that, that the teaching on the Beatitudes are laying out the expectations of Jesus on those that would profess to be a follower. It's okay to think that Jesus has expectations of you. It's okay. I think that the worldly church or the carnal Christian, they don't like to think it that way. They don't like to think that God has expectations of them. They just like to think that I'm saved by God's grace, which we are, thank the Lord. But they don't like to recognize the fact that after you're saved, there are expectations of you to be a producer in the kingdom, not simply a consumer. That's a very, the producer-consumer model is something we talk a lot about in the marketing world. But yet, sometimes in the Christian world, we like to think about just being consumers. But God expects us to be producers. There are expectations. And what we're going to discover in this study is that Jesus has no problem describing the reality of what it looks like to be his follower. He's not shy. He's not embarrassed about telling people what he expects. You know, here's the thing. Jesus always spoke truth. Think about that. He never spoke a word that wasn't true. He never spoke a word that was partially true. He spoke truth. And because he spoke truth, he is showing, he is proving his love through the truth of what God wanted him to say. Because you and I both know that if there's any untruth or partial truth in anything that Jesus said, if Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no, one, no man comes to the Father except through me, except those that do this, what would we do? Those that do this. <laughs> we would find the workaround. I mean, we're, 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 we're the world today, the worldly church is already trying to find the workaround and Jesus didn't even give him an opportunity to because all he spoke was truth. So if we're going to have a relationship with, with Jesus, then we have to recognize that it's not through a casual observation of what he says. If we're going to have a relationship with him, it's going to be an intentional, deliberate relationship based upon the truth that Jesus speaks. Amen? And there's nothing wrong with that. I just want us to get comfortable with that. Because Jesus isn't laying on a heavy yoke, as Leland said already. 
He said, get, he said take my yoke upon you because my burden is light. So to really understand where Jesus is coming from, it's important for us to recognize that he's all about truth. He's all about speaking um, the things that set us free. So let's set the context a little bit further. We have to go back. We're going to begin in chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where our text is. But we're going to be, we have to go back to chapter 4 to really understand where we're at in the context of what's happening, at least in Matthew. All right? Now, chapter 4, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was proclaiming forgiveness, repentance, baptism for the sins of the world. He, he, was pro, he was proclaiming that someone greater was coming, that someone greater is Jesus. So Jesus was baptized by John, and then immediately he was led into the desert for 40 days of prayer, fasting, and temptation. Now that's an amazing study. We're going to come back sometime and study the three temptations that Jesus had in the desert and how we can apply them, how we must, not can, how we must apply those temptations in our life. But that's a study for another day. I can't wait to do that one. That's going to be an awesome study. But after Jesus comes back, he now is uh, refreshed. He's conquered the enemy uh, from the temptations that, he, that were given to him. And uh, now John the Baptist is being put, has been put in prison and um, for some things that he has said and from the king there. And so now John the Baptist is in prison. Jesus moves from Nazareth to the city of Capernaum, Capernaum, probably because it was more densely populated, probably because it was easier for his ministry. We don't know really why he moved from Nazareth to there, but he did. And now he was beginning to draw a lot of attention to himself because he was beginning a powerful ministry of healing, and, and, and proclaiming truth of teaching and healing. Jesus was beginning to draw a crowd. People were starting to follow him because he was different from any, any other prophet or teacher to this point in time. So he was getting a lot of public attention. But the question I ask now, what was the message, though, that Jesus was proclaiming as he was beginning his ministry? What was the message it's important that we understand that Jesus' first message, what was it? What was he saying? Well, remember that Jesus was following the introduction of John the Baptist. And John's message was clear. It was all about repentance and being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what John was doing. He was proclaiming that. So following the introduction of John the Baptist, Jesus' primary message was where John ended. Jesus picked up where John ended, and here is the first here's the first requirement that Jesus put on people. Matthew chapter 4 verse 17. From that time on, from that time on means from Jesus coming back from the desert, recognizing that John the Baptist is in prison and so forth. His first ministry question or his first ministry statement was that Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. Isn't that interesting that Jesus' first command would be to repent? So what does it mean to repent? To repent means to change 
one's mind or attitude or purpose. And it carries with it the root sense of pain. Think about this for a minute. Repentance is associated with painful things. It's hard to repent. Repenting from sins doesn't simply mean it's not just an academic change of mind, but it is a heartfelt transformation of one's mind. It's an intentional attitude and purpose that if it's genuine, if repentance is genuine, it will lead to a transformation of one's actions away from previous, a previous sinful life. So repentance is a painful experience, and it requires an intentional effort and results in specific actions in a, perfect, in a person's life. And let me give you an example. Probably the, the best example that I've seen in my life of what repentance is. And please understand how I say this and why I say this, because I say it very carefully, because it could be taken wrong if you don't listen to what I'm saying. The, the, the best example that I have of a, of a man knowing how to repent was my dad. My dad was a very strong man. He was very self-made. He was a type A personality. He's a man that I would not have wanted to pastor. <laughs> and my dad did some things early on in life that were very business-like. And he made a lot of money, or relatively, right? But he did it kind of Dawson's way with the proclamation of Jesus all of his life. I've seen Jesus proclamated for my dad all, all of my life, but not everything lined up. And if my, my dad's going to hear this message. I know that. And I'm going to talk to my dad about this in heaven. So I'm not, I'm not speaking behind his back here because he would admit this. He would admit this if he was here, is that he didn't always do things right. He maybe took advantage of people. Maybe he didn't do all the right things business-wise. Maybe he would, I hate to say it, maybe he would cut corners on his income taxes a little bit. Maybe, are you tempted to do that maybe? It's anything, that, you know, and he would do things that would, that, would, that would benefit him and the business that he was running. So I'm watching this from afar. I'm not judging my dad over this because I'm not up here. I'm down in Brighton. I come up here in 2005 to start a business with my dad. And um, so about that time, he's diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis. And it was a fatal disease for him. And um, through that time of him growing weaker physically, some things started to transform in his life spiritually. And if you knew my dad 10 years before he had this, and if you knew my dad the last month or the last six months or the last year of his life, you would see that's a different man. He was a different man at the end. Why? Because my dad finally understood what it meant to repent. I saw him go to people. I heard stories. People have come to me off the street and say, you know what? Your dad came to me. One, one of them was, I'm not telling you names, but he was a person that was involved with the road commission. And my dad ran the, the, the landfill. And so my dad, they always had battles over weight limits and all this other stuff. And so my dad would always try to cut the corners or whatever. And this guy, they had a head-to-head relationship that wasn't good. But this guy came to me a year ago or so and said, you know, I want to tell you though, Mike, the last few months of your dad's life, he came to me 
and he apologized to me. And he said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I did things wrong. You know what that's called? Repentance. I heard stories where he owed people money. And he went back to those people that he owed money to and he said, you know, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Can I repay my debt with interest? And he did. That's repentance. He also told me that there was one situation, again, I'm not using names, but a man wouldn't accept, accept his forgiveness. And said, nope, I'm not doing it. And there's nothing my dad could do about that. So part of repentance is knowing where you're to leave it. Do everything you can to make right what you did wrong. And what you can't make right, you just say, I'm sorry. And you leave it at the cross. And then it's between that person and Jesus. That's repentance. It's an action that sometimes, not sometimes, it always involves humility. It always involves an act of getting off your high horse, coming down to the reality of people and saying, I hurt you or I'm sorry. And here's the beautiful thing about forgiveness for those that have to forgive. Forgiveness never means that what they did was right. It's simply an act of releasing them from paying the debt that they owe you. That's what forgiveness is. And Jesus modeled it so well. So his first action here was to give people a process of how to repent. Number one, you turn from evil. In other words, you leave a lifestyle of sinful living. And it's not just leaving the lifestyle, but now the second thing is you turn to good. Is that now you fill that void where you were doing wrong, you're filling it with not wrongdoing, but you're filling it with good doing. Or actions required too to do the right things, not just to ask for, for forgiveness and repent of the bad things, but now you fill your life with doing good things. So repentance is so much more than simply being sorry for the sin because you know there's, there's not real, there, there's, there's a form of sorrow that you really don't know if they're really sorry that they did what they did or are they sorry they got caught doing what they did. Different kind of sorrow. A repentance kind of sorrow it involves a deliberate and intentional act that it changes one's behavior from a lifestyle of sin and doing wrong to seeking forgiveness and doing right. And what can't be changed or what can't be made right is simply left at the cross of Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. Is that easy to do? What's your flesh say right now? <laughs> No, if you're like me, which probably you are, your flesh rises up and say, that's not easy to do. And I don't really want to do that. It's not fun. But Jesus' first entry of ministry was giving a difficult assignment to mankind. His first entry in ministry was giving a difficult assignment to us. And recognize that with repentance and forgiveness comes a lifestyle of freedom and no regret. Think about that. 
But Jesus doesn't ever ask you to do something that isn't good for you. So if he's going to ask you to repent, he's got something good in store. And that's called freedom. And that's called no regret. So the Beatitudes really are a set of choices that Jesus is presenting to the people. He's giving us a set of choices because when we get into the Beatitudes, you're going to recognize that every one of these Beatitudes is a choice that we make to command our attitude towards something. And from this point on, the message that Jesus gives on the Sermon of the Mount after this is all choices that if we apply them, then we can live a life truly of being blessed the way God wants to bless us. One of the commentaries that I read about this says this. This is the first and longest message of Jesus that we have in the gospel. Jesus had been announcing that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, and he had been calling for people to repent. Now, in what has been described as the manifesto of his kingdom, Jesus unveils the foundations and character of life in that kingdom. Here he teaches the ethical guidelines for life in his kingdom. And the guidelines point to the quality of righteousness that characterizes life in the kingdom. Now in part, but fully in the future. So if Jesus is saying repent, it's only logical that he's going to give us the information now on what that really means to to repent. And he's going to define then what does it mean to turn from sin and evil and to turn to good. And that's the message of the whole New Testament. The whole New Testament is all about what it means to turn from evil and turn to good. Recognize, again, the context of the day that Jesus was in. Jesus' purpose for coming into the world physically was to fulfill the Old Testament spiritually. He didn't come in to do away with the laws He didn't come in to do away with what God had said. What he was coming in to do was be a spiritual fulfillment of the physical requirements of the Old Testament. And with that comes freedom. So I want to give you an example. Turn to Isaiah 61 in your Bible or look on the screen. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. This is the prophet Isaiah speaking hundreds of years before Jesus came. And Isaiah is basically given the outline, if you will, of the Beatitudes. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and people for those who grieve in Zion to bestow upon them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So keep that in mind as we read our text coming up here in chapter 5 of Matthew where Jesus now is given the Beatitudes that the instructions that we're to choose to do, basically what Isaiah said hundreds of years before. All right, so turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5. This is our our text. And beginning at verse 3. 
It says, now when he saw the crowds, he is Jesus. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they will be filled. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of God. Verse 12, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray for a minute. Father, help us with this. Help us to understand what you're really saying here. Help us to grasp the choices that we have at hand. Help us to be blessed and help us to see your hand in all of this. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We see that every one of these proclamations here really are a sermon on their own accord. Each time Jesus made a statement, he made it with the attention, the intention of, peop- of getting people's attention to think about what he just said. And then he fulfills it throughout the whole scriptures. I mean, he, he says things kind of as a shock value in some way. Because when you say, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those that, you know, that are persecuted, those are things that are contrary to our flesh, and we, it makes us stop, step back and think a little bit about it. Last week, we, we spent the entire message describing what it means to be blessed. What, is, what does it mean to really be blessed? I mean, Jesus says blessed nine times in nine scriptures, nine passages. So that's a big word. What does it mean to be blessed? And we're not going to take the time to go back and re-preach that message today. But if you weren't here, I would advise you to go back and listen to it. It's online because there's some really good, some good truths that we pulled out of that last week. Because blessings don't always appear to be what, what, what we think they are. Blessings can come in many different forms. Blessings can come through sorrow. Blessings can come through rainy days. Blessings can come through sunshine. Blessings can come through sickness. Blessings can come through financial wealth. Blessings can come from poverty. It doesn't make any difference what state you are in life. Blessings can come if you're allowed, if you're allowing the Holy Spirit to lead you in the area of God's blessing in the midst of your situation. Let me just describe what a blessing feels like. A blessing feels like an inner peace that describes an attitude of worship and surrender that comes with knowing that no matter what's happening on the outside, I'm in a right relationship with God and my present situation and my future situation is in God's total control and I'm safe in his arms regardless. Listen, regardless 
of my physical situation. That's a blessing. When I know that God has it all in his hands and all my job is is to rest in him, that's a blessing. That's why blessings can come in all different kinds of forms. That's why blessings can come in heartache, family breakups, sickness. Blessings can come when I trust God that he has it all. And that's what we're going to learn about as we study each of the nine Beatitudes or proclamations that Jesus describes because he's saying be blessed in all of these things. Be blessed. And I find it no problem for Jesus to set up the conditions of what it means to be a follower of him. Even Jesus even says, listen, guys, if you're going to be a follower of me, you have to take up your cross and follow me. In other words, Jesus has no problem saying, guys, it's going to require some hard work of you to follow me. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be rejected. You might even have to suffer. But the thing that bothers me the most is that the modern church doesn't see it that way today. We've diminished what it means to be blessed by God because we will not walk the road that blessings require. We'll look for a workaround. We'll look, for the, we'll look for an easier way out of the problem. And that's why in our prayer time I felt inspired to say, if you're still believing for a healing, keep believing. Don't give up. Know that this is a time of blessing in your life. God is using this as a way to bless you. Just don't give up. Persevere to the end. He's faithful. So the definition of a beatitude is a statement or a condition of blessedness or utmost bliss. That's what the definition says. If you go look it up in a dictionary, some dictionaries will say this. It's a statement or condition of blessedness or utmost bliss. (laughs) Beatitudes, blissful? I don't know. When it says, blessed are those that are going to suffer, he says, when it says a beatitude, I think we have to use the play on words a little bit because we have to command our attitude to be something that it doesn't want to be. So beatitude, blessed. Beatitude, blissful in times of utmost difficulty. Beatitude of trusting God, of not giving up. Because given the conditions that we face, true believers face in this evil and unjust world, we're often given the short end of the stick. Amen? It's not always easy. But we're to say, be attitude. Because when I say be attitude, that gives me the ability to be a testimony when I'm in the cancer ward taking my chemotherapy. 
And I can be sitting there taking chemotherapy with joy, not because I'm sick, but because I have faith in Christ. And the person sitting next to me that's taking the same treatment, maybe not having that joy, and they look over and see, hey, what's different about you? How can you go through this with a sense of peace? Well, be attitude. Be attitude. Know the blessing that God has in this. Because ultimately, we all know this, this is not our home anyways. We're journeying through this place, and I want to live this place here so that I'm qualified to be in that place there. Perfect, as Jesus is perfect. And I do that through my attitude. I do that through my choice. Another commentary says this, that there are certain character requirements If we wish to receive the benefits of God's kingdom, we must be guided by God's purposes and values and not by the ways and values of the world. Because the world doesn't see blessings the way God sees blessings. The world doesn't define a blessing the way the Beatitudes define a blessing. And I think that we're going to see that as we go through. These values are a choice that we accept. Let me just tell you this. This is something that just doesn't happen automatically. You can walk out from underneath a blessing, and you can walk away from a beatitude. The question that we have is, are we willing to choose these values in order to be blessed by God? Are we willing Or are we going to choose not to apply these values and these conditions in my life, thinking that I can find my own way around it? It's my choice. God always gives us a choice. Always puts it at my, it always gives me the choice. Mike, what are you going to do about this? Are you going to believe me or are you going to believe your own way? Are you going to try to work around or are you going to just trust me in what I'm saying? And I know it's hard, but that's the choice we have to make. So let's begin with our first beatitude. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, what does that mean? Poor in spirit as opposed to being arrogant and self-reliant. To be poor in spirit may have a number of different aspects of what Jesus was describing, but it might mean to be poor physically. It, may be, it might mean poor regarding my possessions. So if it is that way, then it means that people were, that were poor in the day that Jesus was speaking this parable or this, this proclamation back 2,000 years ago, these people that were poor were probably oppressed by others and had little to no power. They were probably servants of other people. They had no resources of their own to fall back on. They were dependent on others for their survival. Maybe that way is today as well in some cases. But the good news, though, is that Jesus fulfilled the promise to these people that were poor in spirit, not by making them rich in terms of earthly possessions to gain the kingdom. In other words, poor in spirit has nothing to do with finances. Even though you may be poor, it's nothing to do with your finances. But Jesus fulfilled their greatest need by making them the greatest in the kingdom of God despite their financial resources. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says later in this same book, Matthew 19, verse 30, 
Jesus says, but many who are the greatest now will be last, will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be greatest then. So the first will be last, and the last will be first. Remember, Jesus' definition of blessings do never, very very seldomly ever match up to the world's definition of blessings. So to do this, we must recognize the need to be humble and dependent on God, not our own resources to be self-sufficient in my own abilities. Whether it's my own, my own abilities with my talents or with my resources, I need to be able to say, God, it's not about that. It's a choice that I'm taking. It's a choice I'm making. So what does that look like? See, people who are poor in spirit are those that are humble before God. Poor in spirit means that they're humble before God. They realize that they have nothing in this life that God wants. <laughs> I can't impress God with anything that I have because he's the one that gave it to me. I can't say, God, look how good I am. Look how much money I have. Look how much money I've given to the church. Look how good looking I am, God. He's not impressed. <laughs> not impressed at all. But what he's impressed with is my humility and attitude when I say, God, it's all yours. Thank you for giving me the blessing, but I'm giving it all back. I I'm not being selfish with it. I'm giving it back because I know where I came from. People that are humble before, before God, they come to Jesus as helpless and hopeless sinners. And this isn't a self-righteous humility. This isn't a false humility because, you know, we can be false in our humility as well, right? We can have a false sense of humility, only wanting people to say, oh, no, no, you're not that bad. No, stop talking to people about this. This is not something that you talk to each other about. This is something you talk to God about. And God knows your heart. This is where we come before him at the cross and saying, Father, I'm hopeless and I'm helpless. And there is absolutely no arrogance in my spirit. To the best that I can. God, take my arrogance. Take my ego. No self-righteousness. No look at me, God. No look at me and see how good I am. Because anything else than that only gets in the way of being humble before God. If I can't come and pour in spirit saying, God, I give it all to you, physically, spiritually, emotionally, egotistically, I give it all to you to the best that I can, then he has no other way to work around you because he's not going to come and take it from you. He's only going to take what you give him. So Jesus is saying here that everyone who wishes to enter the kingdom of God must come in a spiritually poor condition for salvation to be gifted to that person. We don't, um, what's the word I'm thinking for? What's the word? Enabled, not, not enabled. We're not entitled. We're not entitled to anything heavenly. We're not entitled to that. We come in an age of entitlement, right? I mean, look at, look at our government. We were just talking to someone before service about the problem that we're having right now with most places that we can't find people to work is because we've given them too much not to work. <laughs> we've given, you know, if you can make more money sitting at home 
from unemployment than you would if you were out working. And how is that working for us? Not so good right now because I can't go to my favorite restaurant because they don't have workers some days. I'm selfish, I know. But the reality is we're not entitled to anything heavenly. We only get it when I come to the Lord spiritually poor and say, Father, help me. Help me. And this is a challenge to the rich. This is a challenge to the rich. And good news to the poor. And I say it this way. It's a challenge to the rich because they must realize, and I say they, we must realize, because in all honesty, we're all rich. You look at the world around us, we, every American is rich. So I'm going to not say they, I'm going to say we, <laughs> okay? So we must realize that our earthly possessions mean nothing to entry into eternal life. And I must be willing to humble myself in the sight of men and God. That's my challenge. It's also good news to the genuinely poor and the oppressed because they don't have to earn their way into the kingdom through earthly endeavors. So they have nothing to prove either. So both classes of people, really what I'm saying here is that both classes of people are on the same level before God at the foot of the cross and all must come humbly before Jesus in their total honesty for their need for him and total reliance on the grace and mercy to save them. And even though it may be harder for a rich person to come into the kingdom and maybe easier for a poor person to come into the kingdom because they're already dependent on God possibly, let me just tell you, it's nothing to do with your financial value. If a person of any condition is to enter the kingdom of God, they must come poor in spirit to do so. That's why he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So how does one become poor in spirit? How do we do it? We come through repentance for sin and submission to God. Remember Jesus' first message to mankind was a tough one. Repent. We become pure in poor in spirit through our repentance. We confess our sin. We recognize there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And then secondly, there must be a recognition that there is a continual humbling of ourselves before God. This is not a one-time deal. <laughs> this is not a one-time and done. No, if I'm, gonna, if I'm going to come poor in spirit, I must come on a continual basis in my humility before God, recognizing who I am in Christ. I mean, I'm not trying to say that we go around with ashes on our face and, oh, poor is me. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that before God, I come to God every day. God, I need you more every day. I, I need you to build me up every day. I'm never, I can't do this on my own. But with that level of relationship, I can look to the world like I'm the strongest man in the world because I have the right relationship with God. And I can be having the secret that nobody else has because they, I have a relationship and they don't. And my relationship is built on humility and poor in spirit. And that makes me rich. And that makes me rich in the kingdom. That's awesome. I love that. Jackie, would you come please? This requires that, our, that we need to intentionally pray and develop 
a faith in God that is obedient to the commands of God's word. I tell you what, folks, there is Jesus brings many expectations to our lives. There's not one expectation that Jesus gives us that says it's going to be easy. It's going to be worth it. But he never says it's going to be easy. If we're looking for easy, we're looking for the wrong thing. If you want to be fulfilled, then look, understand what that means. He doesn't make it hard. I'm not saying it's going to be hard either. I'm just saying that we can't be looking for the easy way out, is my point. Right? I mean, there is no greater joy than living in proper relationship with God. There's no greater joy than being poor in spirit. There's no greater joy than having that relationship with God based upon humility. You know, I think today, I wonder if Jesus would be that radical, crazy man. Do you think he was then? Do you think people looked at him as radical and crazy? Probably. Because he was really teaching some things that they didn't know. And I wonder where we're at with that today. I wonder if we're reducing the radical nature of Jesus down to a manageable Jesus. Because we're too conflicted. We're too convicted, maybe. You see, you got to recognize that when Jesus was beginning to say these words, he was knowingly setting himself up to be rejected. He knew people were going to reject the message. He knew he w- they would reject him to the point of him having to die on the cross. But he did it anyways. He didn't shy away from it. He didn't say, well, only let, let, let me back off a little bit. Wait, wait, wait maybe too strong. <laughs> no. no, he said truth. He spoke truth. And now he gives us the choice. And he gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to live in it. The truth will set you free. Amen? Be poor in spirit today. Choose to be poor in spirit today. And be blessed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this message today. I thank you, Lord, for the the challenge that you've given us. I thank you, Lord, for the blessings that you've given us. I thank you, Lord, that we are rich. I thank you that we are comfortable. I thank you that we have everything we want most of the time. For sure, we have everything we need. But Lord, I pray that we're able to accept the challenge of what it means to be poor in spirit. That we don't let that become a hindrance to us. That we don't let that to be a stumbling block to say, no, I can't give it all, God. And I pray that you would strengthen us today. I pray you would encourage us. I pray that you would let us feel your love and your mercy and your grace. And I pray, God, that we would walk out of here encouraged and challenged at the same time. Father, we're not looking for the easy way out. We're looking for the only way in, and that is through you. And we just give you our hearts and our lives today. In Jesus' name.
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Jackie and Tom, would you lead us? And let's stand one more time. Let's worship as we prepare to go. Father, that is our prayer today. Lord, that we would surrender our all to you willingly and joyfully, knowing that as we do that, you are faithful to give it all back and blessings, more upon blessings than we would even appreciate. Maybe not in this life, but we know for sure eternally. And that's really the most important thing anyways, is that we're chasing you for because of who you are, not because what you give us. We love you, Jesus. We worship you. We come before you, Father, poor in spirit. And we just thank you for the blessings as a result. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. Be with us as we go to our homes and our places of business this week. Bring us back next week. God, bring us back into fellowship whenever you can, whenever we're able to. And be that blessing to other people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great day. Be blessed. Be blessed.